0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Voice It, where you get to hear about businesses that have been built from the ground up and have turned themselves into success stories. Hi, I'm Annabelle Homer, and it's a bit of an agriculture focus. This week, you get to meet Will Gwynne-Jones. He's a meat wholesaler. He owns a business called Remarkable Meat Company, based out of the Clare Valley. When I approached him for an interview, he said to me, who would be interested in my story? All I do is deal with meat. But everyone has a story worth telling. Will is a St Peter's boy from Adelaide. His family was quite influential in the clothing and manufacturing industry in South Australia. He has three half-brothers and is married to Kirsty, who's a school teacher and they have two children, Henry and Matilda. Will's story takes us on a journey through rural Australia, from jackarooing in western Queensland, corporate farming at the highly regarded Collinsville Sheep Stud in the mid north of South Australia, to working with managed investment schemes in western Victoria, to then running a Dorpah property near Borough, and that was a challenge in itself, to now selling meat to retailers and wholesalers across Australia. This is a story about a boy who loved the freedom and flexibility of rural life. Again, it wasn't planned. A city boy who just fell into it. Enjoy the journey over the next half an hour. We start Will's story at Rosevale, a property smack bang between Charleville and Cunnamulla in southwest Queensland.
1: Three weeks out of year 12, straight up into southwest Queensland. Mum and Dad dropped me off in my little my little donger or whatever it was. And I remember Mum crying as she dropped me off. And, and Were you uh, crying? that was it. No, I, no, no, Christ. <laughs> Don't no. leave me, Mum. No, no, leave me, please. Um, <laughs> and look, I mean, as far as where I am now, that first year is, 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 is a big part of it. I think um, I was very lucky to go to that property and work for someone who was uh, at that stage a bit of a mentor and obviously still is um, and I think that was, that was my grounding.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how many years did you jackaroo <clears throat> for and at that stage in your life did you know where you were heading?
1: No, no. So I mean, yeah, whilst uh, one half of my family were sort of rural related but with no to speak of holdings, um, the other side of my family were in food service uh, so restaurants and things like that. So,
0: is that your mother's side or your? Father's uh, so
1: that's my father's side. Okay. Yeah. Um, and right through to my, um, my godparents and all that sort of stuff.
0: And we're talking restaurants in in Queensland.
1: Not really knowing what I was going to do, I went jackarooing, uh, at in southwest Queensland, and the idea was that I'd do six months of that, and then I'd go into um my godfather's brother's restaurant in in Brisbane, a well known sort of. Um, a restaurant in, in Eagle Street. P and 9. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, look, it got to the six month point of, of Jackarooing, and Maddie Hill Smith, who was the person that owned the property, um, said, Look, I think you'll go further in agriculture. And that was about the end of that. I remember specifically where he asked me, and I, I remember giving him the specific answer of sort of, Yep, yeah, no worries. And that was the end of that. So that my trajectory at that point was um, it was agriculture, I suppose. I think it was an easy decision at that point. I was working for a fantastic mentor type person. I was working on a on a on a property that, you know, I had a lot of free reign, which I think was, was good. You know, I w I didn't have a bit. I wasn't in a big stock camp or anything like that. It was a, a pretty simple sheep and cattle station. It was a manager and myself, a cook and a gardener. That was about it. It was a, it was a, a great – you know, I had my own youth and all these sort of – so it was great. I mean, for someone that's 17 to have that sort of freedom mm. was fantastic. And the, the seasonally, it was – yeah, it was good. There was floods either side, side of me being there. I love being there. I love working for, for the people I did and I just worked. I worked seven days a week. I had nearly no social life and just worked and loved it.
0: So once you made that decision, nope, not going into the food industry, let's stay in agriculture, what was the next step?
1: I've worked there, and um,
0: and who was that for? You say he was uh, a great mentor. Who was well? That?
1: I worked for a fellow called Vince Wall, um, mm-hmm. who was a younger sort of fella at that time, and he was uh, he was a, he was a teacher at, at Longreach JAG College before he came down there. So he had all the the right sort of I don't know terminology or benchmarks or something like that. You know, I always remember him saying, you know, I'd sort of. Hand, hand dig a, a post hole and put a post hole in and ram it all in you go oh, I'll give that an 8 out of 10 sort of thing I always remember that so I was always trying to ch- always trying to get to the 10 out of 10 sort of thing. Did but, you ever? Uh, probably not. <laughs> yeah so it was a very good one-on-one relationship that did set me up after one year there I, I think I remember the ref I mean I was always told to get written references from all your employees and all that sort of stuff and so I think I remember the written reference, and I think a passage in there was Will needs some social interaction. <laughs> um, so it'd be best that uh, he moves sort of onto onto a southern type arrangement where there's you know other other kids his own age and all this sort of stuff. I I, I loved living up there, and I'd probably still be up there if they didn't sort of say that I should not be. But
0: I wonder what you were doing to, for them to say that.
1: Well, it was funny. Like it was, I mean, there's a bit of a backstory to that. The, so maddie bought the place and it was one of those sort of archetypal old properties for the area um, and a few old dudes on there, old station hands and stuff like that, that uh, probably the work rate wasn't considered efficient. When this new guy, manager, turned up, they all sort of got the sack. We lived about 20 k's from, from a pub and, you know, once five people, sort of four or five people get the arse off a property that live in the local town and some snotty-nosed little 17-year-old seems to have taken their job, you sort of immediately become scab labour. Uh, so I sort of conveniently more or less got barred from the pub on, on the back of their advice to the publican. so I That's couldn't stupid. go to the pub, so i just basically get the marman to bringing me out a bottle of rum every Friday night, and that, that'd be my social existence.
0: <laughs> what was the local town?
1: Wyandra. Yeah. Inadvertently, I sort of became a bit reclusive out there. But like I say, it didn't worry me. I, I loved I loved it. So I'd had enough socialising at boarding school, I think.
0: You needed to go somewhere where there was a lot more younger people. You'd have a social life. So where, yeah. where was so, the next step?
1: Yeah, so obviously with a few connections and stuff, I ended up at Collinsville Sheepstudden in the Mid-North. Uh, and I worked for a, another great man called Wal Hennessy. He had a, had a kid at, at boarding school who I was a mate with and... Applied for the job. They were, um, again, Wohl had sort of just taken over the property. Um, a fella called Paddy Hanbury had bought it, I think, on the on the understanding that Wohl would run it. And so I was probably on the second intake of Jackaroos, I think. And so I went down there as a second-year Jackaroo and worked for Wohl Hennessy, who was, yeah, an, another mentor. Fantastic guy. And, and a fantastic property. I mean, it was very... I mean, obviously, Collinsville's... You know, it's, it's got a huge history. It's It's probably responsible for about 30% of the national sheep genetics, Merino genetics. So, you know, there's a huge amount of history there that I got embroiled in, loved it. it, you know, got to meet and work with a lot of guys from different parts of the country and, and, and world and learn a lot, Worked for some great people.
0: Was that then the pivot for you to go into corporate farm management, having that experience? Yeah, that- so, I
1: mean, with, with Collinsville, again, I, I, I suppose... I, th- I think I thrived. You know, I was really, really into the ag game and, and enjoyed it and um, I had a work ethic that I think was probably created in Queensland and so I ended up overseer of the Ram Depot in my third year at Collinsville and Collinsville sort of suggested that, uh, that they'd help me go through Marcus Oldham. So obviously then I'd be doing three years out, physical work, Marcus Oldham for several years, I was a three-year degree uh, and then the understanding that'd help me go through Marcus to go back and start Collinsville. So it's
0: a great setup.
1: Yeah, and but then Wild died in a plane crash, so it sort of all fell apart. That was sad, and that and that rocked Collinsville. The trajectory that was on prior to his death was, you know, it, I'm sure it'd still be maintaining now if he didn't die. Yeah, um, I think the property was sort of was bought for Wild to run more or less. You know, so there probably was a bit of um, a bit of a grey area there of, of, of its um, its trajectory, but it, I mean, it kept going. It's it's well, okay. it's obviously been re- the stud's been re bought now, and a lot of the land's been distributed out. But look, that's probably the cycle of agriculture, mm. and it's probably the cycle of corporate corporate farming, really.
0: Did you end up going to Marcus Oldham?
1: Yeah, I did. You did, yeah.
0: and you came back.
1: No, I did, not to Collinsville, no.
0: To, so where did you go after that? Uh,
1: so yeah, so Marcus. So that was sort of essentially three years. Um, after that, I went back to Longreach, so back into Queensland. Obviously, you know, and I think, I can't remember what my mindset was, I think I had some grand plan of going back to Queensland and starting to farm in the in the far west, which may happen one day, but, <laughs> you know, I mean, Queensland's fantastic. It's um, If you ask any Queenslander, it's the only state to be in and it hasn't, no other state can offer what Queensland does and, and to a degree it's true. I think the varying production systems they've got, agriculture through, you know, banana farming and, you know, the, you've got the tropics and then the desert. It's a, there's a lot going on there and I, th- I think after Marcus injected with all that good uh, knowledge I wanted to go and take on the world so I went back and worked for a, a sort of a, a family farming Corporate setup, yeah.
0: Let's talk about your social life for just a moment and family life. When did Kirsty arrive on the scene?
1: At Marcus. So Marcus is a is a three year course. The middle year you do um, a practical element, and on the on the proviso that you get to analyse that farm business. So they sort of essentially open the books to you, and you can analyse the farm business, and and then one part of it is is implement a, a change and, and cost it do all that sort of stuff. So in that year, you sort of can't take on any sort of real management responsibility. You've, you're have you sort of there as a as a lackey. Uh, but no, again, it was a great experience. I worked uh, on a, a a cattle feedlot near Meningi, derby which was interesting and, uh, you know. Um,
0: was that your first taste of cattle or because uh, you Well, a lot with well intensively, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, intensively yeah. for sure. Yeah. And, you know, and cropping in non-wetting sands and all that sort of stuff. So I definitely learnt a lot. Yeah, and had, had a bit of fun doing it, and which was close to Adelaide, so I spent a lot of time driving to Adelaide and partying. is where Kirsty came on the scene.
0: Can we go to the next step of your career, <coughs> where you entered the corporate farm man- management area, yep. and why you decided to go down that track? Why did that appeal to you, and what does it involve being oh, look, a manager in that type of situation?
1: Look, Many would argue that a lot of farm businesses are corporate ag now. I think in how they're run, I mean, they're all big turnover companies with big asset portfolios. I, moved, I went to Western Victoria and worked for a, a managed investment scheme sort of type company. So essentially it was a, uh, a business set up by a couple of ex-politicians and, and the basis of it was a lot of blue gums and, and managed investment schemes around cattle and blue gums, Tomatoes and all this sort of stuff. I consider that corporate ag. It was run out of an office in St Kilda Road in Melbourne. The sort of the powers that be were nowhere near it.
0: How long did you do that for?
1: So we're there for three years. Yeah, and the kids were born in um, Ballarat, so I've got two f- Victorian children. The tax minimisation schemes and, and and the speed at what they can uh, accumulate land and wealth is was something to see. But I think that well, I mean, it did all come crashing down. Like anything, it if it seems too good to be true, it often is.
0: Is it fair to say it does have a bad name now?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it, it does. The model is interesting, though, and I think the model still exists now, but and how, how they run is regulated a lot heavier.
0: So why did it come crashing down?
1: I think essentially the imaginary Scheme, by definition, you have to have something in order to sell it. Um, what do you mean? Well, you- I mean, you have to have the project up and running before you can sell it to an investor. So
0: they were getting the money even before it started.
1: Yeah, I think that was a bit of that. But nevertheless, I still, again, I still consider those people whether they're right or wrong on what they did fondly because of what I learnt from them. I mean, they are lovable rogues or interesting people or something like that.
0: Well, then what led you to the meat wholesaling industry?
1: From Western Victoria, we, when we sort of got out of there, we could sort of see what was happening we, I thought, oh well, I'll go back to the bush. I went to Western Victoria because I, I remember going through there spring on you know, a spring sunny day, and it was grass was growing and the sun was shining and the, you know, and the Grampians were looking awesome. And I thought, no, I want to work here. So I found a job there and uh, realised that for about three or four months of the year it's like that, and the rest of it's cold and wet and bleak. <laughs> and where we <laughs> lived near Ballarat was some of the coldest bloody parts <laughs> of the world, you know. And well, uh, on that. I thought, oh, I might go bush again. So we, um, there was a property east of Borough that um, had come up for sale. I f- threw a few contacts, found out who bought it. You know, it was a it was a, a reasonably big pastoral property close to town. I thought, well, that sounds pretty cool. So we found out who bought it. Uh, it was a West Australian guy, family. So I made sure that I got the job, basically. I think I remember flying over to Perth and having an interview in a airport lounge area there and, at that time, the the guys in Victoria were trying to keep me there. Whilst the, the thing was uh, all disbanding, uh, they needed someone to still run it in case it, they got through it all. They had an offer on the table for me to stay there. But, yeah, so I had a little window of about a week, I think, to to get out and make sure I got this job. And um, So, yeah, luckily for me, we, we moved to um, a property east of Barra and, and set aside sort of developing that for... For running Dorpers, which at that time in South Australia and probably to a degree still now, are a bit of a nasty word. So that's the wool uh,
0: shedding sheep.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, you know, so we bought on the Hammersleys bought a uh, a sheep pastoral property uh, to run these animals. Um, they'd been doing it in Western Australia for a bit um, on the inside country. Um, so they bought this property to to expand their their grip of of the Dorper thing in the eastern states and. Uh, I'd done a bit of homework prior to prior to them dropping any there and we realised that the, the fencing needed to be done so um, we embarked on a fairly big fencing program, you know, spent lots of money and it's all good fun doing that with other people's money.
0: And you changed the mindset of many of the neighbours? <laughs> or did that Shit. take a few years? So tell no, me some of the stories no, ha- oh, happened. Oh, Christ.
1: Well, <laughs> you know, I, I read up. <laughs> Another mate of mine had sort of been down a similar path on his own property in in West New South, so you know he armed me with lots of good information and and reading material to so I could armour myself against uh, any of the neighbours. What Look, was
0: the mindset? Why were they so against them?
1: Oh, it was the, so shedding sheep, the demedulated fibre issue, um, and and devaluing a wool clip. So essentially, demedulated fibre doesn't it's it's not a wool. Um, it doesn't take to to colouring or anything like that so it's sort of like a dog hair in amongst um, a wool, wool coat you know but look I could see their point of view but I think it was probably a little unfounded I think figuratively it, it was never as bad as as I think it was presumed but nevertheless um, it was important for us to do everything we could to make sure that we had no impact on their on their operations. so hence the fencing irrespective of what the, the owners of the properties thought I I uh, fenced. I was surrounded by some pretty serious wool growers, a couple of studs and some very, very high-performing wool growers who I've utmost respect for, brilliant, brilliant pastoralists. So, you know, and I was a newcomer, I was pretty new and the Western Australians had a, probably a bit of a tainted history in South Australia, particularly with Collinsville. Um, so, you know, everyone was, was sort of a bit wary of, of this Western Australian crew coming in and dropping a heap of money on these weird animals and... And, you know, we end up buying a couple of properties, so...
0: Well, now the Dorper industry is quite large now, isn't yeah, it, South it's, Australia? It's grown quite a bit, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, it has. Yeah. So, look, w- the Dorpers they did well in that environment, and their ability to eat everything, to put on weight, is, uh, you know, a Merino guy saying once, and I think it was, I think it was in relation to it, there was a, a meeting in Western Australia when they, when the Dorpers first turned up there, they went through all the same issue, and... I remember this fellow's telling me about this sort of town meeting this old bloke stood up at the back of the room and and said you know these bloody dorpers you know they're nothing but trouble at least a merino can go to a corner of a paddock and drop dead whereas a dorper just keeps going you know <laughs> they'll rip through fences and their their willingness to eat in order to obviously gain weight which is what we we're making money out of was um, was pretty pretty remarkable so they've probably got the ability and the The broader perspective is the ability to destroy country before they drop dead. So you've sort of got to manage the country rather than the animal, whereas the merino is probably a bit the other way.
0: You've been managing a few stations by this point. Mm. How easy was it to get work? Because getting good managers these days is pretty hard. There's plenty of managers out there, but getting good ones is, is, is pretty tricky. Did you find that you were in demand or was it still quite hard or quite competitive to get a job?
1: I think definitely tertiary education shows farm business that you're prepared to learn. I think Marcus Autumn's definitely got some sort of kudos. I'm not sure how many farm managers were floating around at that time. You know, there's a lot of corporate guys that... Because, you know, these corporate guys... I mean, a lot of these guys, they start at an early age and they just stay in that company forever. Whilst I'm not sure whether I was in demand then or not, obviously I could sort of navigate my way fairly well. But there's, I think the demand's going to grow because as, as everything becomes more corporate and different, you know, overseas guys might buy tracts of land, I think there's definitely, um, in the years to come, I think, that you know, there's some good opportunities for people that want to go down that path, yeah, and and my son may be one of them. Yeah.
0: Well, I guess people who can't afford to buy their own stations yeah. and buy their own land, that's the next step, I guess, isn't that's it? That's right, you know, and
1: I mean the, the stuff's getting dearer and succession-wise, you know, there might be, instances where two brothers and one goes and works and the other stays at home sort of thing. And agriculture's becoming Australia's darling again. You know, we've, uh, on this last lot of sort of COVID stuff, it's sort of now we're losing sort of a lot of Asian education, sort of those main GDP generators, Agriculture sort of falling to the top again, as it did, you know, as it seems to all time and time again. So I think hopefully um, from a broader perspective, maybe Australian government will... Do everything they can to make sure agriculture keeps streaming ahead, and and then you know people were attracted into it.
0: Going back to Kirsty and the kids, yeah, how did they feel about moving around?
1: Kirsty's Kirsty's from the country. That's there's no issues there, and 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 quite happy. You know, she doesn't need a lot of social activity. Or I mean, she was she's built for it, so that was that was no worries. You know, Red, Redcliffe. When we are out east of Borough, you know, with small kids it was tricky. She's quite a highly educated teacher, Masters of Teaching, all sort of stuff. So she ended up, we are only 60 k's from from Borough, so the kids would, uh, I think Henry was on school kindy on the air for a bit, but um, then started going to kindy one or two days a week in, in Clare. My parents lived in Clare, so Kirsty would have a job in Borough a couple of days or two or three days a week and she'd Take the kids in there. My mother would come out from Clare, pick up our car with our kids in it, and and take them uh, to kindy. And Matilda wasn't quite a kindy age, but Henry was, so he was in kindy in Clare way back then. Yeah,
0: That's a bit of a juggle. Yeah,
1: well, that's my that's yeah, it's no, my mother. She's uh yeah, she was fantastic. So whilst we enjoyed living out there, you know, Kirsty she wanted to have a job as well, so. It's funny, the the pastoral thing you've you've built for, I don't think I was particularly built for it. Um, I think to really, really love living on a station, I think you've got to enjoy all elements of it, going and catch a yabby in a dam on a Sunday and all that sort of stuff. I was still at that age and point in my life where I wanted to just drive, drive, drive and sort of, I think in retrospect, definitely something I'll pass on to to my kids is to, you know, try and enjoy life as, you know, you, it, it shouldn't be such a rush. I, I was sort of, for some reason, had some sort of need or desire to just sort of try and get to the top of whatever I was trying to get to the top of in a big hurry. Yeah.
0: Do you feel like you've missed things along the way because you've been so focused and so... Yeah. yeah.
1: When you're in agriculture, whilst I was educated to do it and, and, and had sort of experienced enough different businesses along the way... Agriculture is it's it's a business that moves slowly. There's a lot of um, information about it and how it needs to head and stuff like that. But I mean, you're dealing ultimately with Mother Nature, and you can't alter that. And when you're living in an environment where you're in sub ten inch rainfall, like if it doesn't rain, you know you've just got to sort of hunker down and and you know you can't just yeah. There's not a lot you can do. Mm. And so I think at that age. And it was very dry out there, and it's still very dry there now. Like, I was sort of going, well, you know, this is a bit boring. And we'd sort of done all the fencing. I'd built this automated feed lot and done all this sort of stuff, and and, and, and then that was sort of it. And uh, <laughs> I thought, yeah, I'm not sure if I can sort of exist out here and just sort of hang around. And I remember a, a specific point, a neighbour, a, a fellow Roger Dunn, who was a, a great old fellow, he's, he's not with us anymore, but they'd been out on a property north of us forever. Their family had owned it. And I remember running into the, into the fence one day. We just met up on the fence. I was sort of out there doing something, and he was doing a water run. And uh, I remember saying to him, I said, Roger, I haven't seen you out on this fence line before. And he said, oh, well, I've decided to do the water run a different way this week. And I thought, oh, shit. No, I don't think I can see yeah, I remember thinking, I don't want to get to the point where I have to rotate my water run counter or and clockwise well, to, to make, to make life, my life more interesting. interesting. <laughs> but the fact of it is, is that he was probably doing it a different way to see things differently. Uh, you know, it's yeah. it's an in, more of an intrinsic thing that maybe I, at that age, wasn't wasn't ready for. I don't know. I mean, look, I did, we, we got a lot built there in a very short space of time and I don't regret anything that, that we did out there. It was, um, but it just didn't rain. And so we ended up, so there's two properties. There was a property about an hour, hour up the road and so it was quite a big job. It was about 1,500 square kilometres all up. It kept me amused, but, mm. yeah, I think in actually really enjoying living on a, on a station I hadn't quite got yet. I had a bad accident out there too, so that was probably another reason I probably uh, was always sort of moving in my mind off.
0: What happened?
1: I broke my back. How? Yeah, on a motorbike. Twice I've done it now.
0: What, what were you doing?
1: Oh, just mustering and probably riding too fast.
0: And you did it twice?
1: <laughs> I've, I did it when I was 13 as well. I've got two or three fractured vertebrae from then on in my lumbar and then I did T10 and 11 when I was 28.
0: Do you let your kids ride a motorbike?
1: Yeah, one of them races them. (laughs) He does that but I'm sort of, I convinced myself that maybe I was just really bad at falling off them and he's learnt to fall off them better. I don't know. I
0: think you should say you're really good at falling off them. Uh, because you didn't yeah. permanently break your back.
1: Well, yeah. But I mean a lot of the accidents I had i mean a lot of people sort of roll out of them. I seemed to spear tackle myself into the ground and yeah. And how
0: long did it take you to recover? Especially your second injury.
1: Yeah, look, I didn't give myself much time. I think I was in I think two weeks out of intensive care. I was back in the loader. <laughs> I used to take a pillow on a a pillow and a dooner because I was pushing a lot of fence lines. When we were doing this big fencing project. I'd take a dooner and a pillow in the loader, and I think the doctor said you're not meant to sit down probably at all or something. I don't know, but I remember every now and again I'd get the the pillow and the dooner out and put it in the bucket of the loader and lie oh on the goodness. bucket <laughs> and straighten myself out. Of there.
0: Let's move on to the next stage in your life and your next career change, which was the wholesale meat yep. industry. Yeah, and we're talking camels, buffalo, sheep, cattle, goat.
1: Yeah, anything, anything that lives.
0: <laughs> Why or doesn't want to live? What led you down this path?
1: As I touched on East of Bara, where the, the door operation when when we're out there, that was a new thing. The stock agencies didn't want anything to do with them, so I had to sort of find a market forum, a couple of guys in Port Augusta that had a, a business where they were wholesaling specifically Dorpa Lamb. I was at Redcliffe. They said, why don't you come on board with us? I was at that stage in my life. I was looking for something else. And so I went, yeah, and we moved to Port Augusta. And the kids could go to school and Kirstie could work. And I could move out of, out of that mainstream farming type management thing. And I remember, and I think we spoke about this um, the other day, Annabelle, I think a lot of people, when they're in that cycle of on a farm, the rhythm of it and when they hit that point of not wanting to do it anymore, a lot of people, I think, struggle. Farmers, whether they own the farm or work on them, what, what I'm going to do, you know. I don't really want to be a stock agent because I don't want to be one of them or I don't want to do real estate or I'm not a salesman. or So there was definitely a period there when I was out there thinking, well, you know, I'm not sure I want to keep staying out here. I'm sort of bored of it or looking for something else but what do I do and this gave me a great outlet to move to transition so yeah so we moved to Port Augusta I got in with a couple of guys in their business and you know we grew it together and again learned stuff it's a footy verlic integrated in my mind now I am mm. in from right from a lamb right through to wholesale so I could sort of see the whole the whole system so um, where do
0: you process
1: so we process in an abattoir north of Adelaide uh, and distribute sort of to high-end retail. Their, their business uh, disbanded and um, I had no choice. I just sort of I carried on. Again, another big decision made for me is entering your own business. So, you know, moving from a cushy sort of farm management type role into the next, you know, into wholesale and then sort of forced into, into starting my own business, which is another step that I think honestly... I, Unless if you're not forced into it, many people don't do I mean moving your own business is a big step for everyone.
0: <clears throat> what did you find the most challenging?
1: Yeah, look, it's just cash, especially in wholesale it's 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 a relatively big turnover and small margin and i didn't I don't have family money or anything like that, so I, you know I sold the family car and mortgaged the house and way I went so mm,
0: took big risks then
1: well, yeah, and I mean that's the thing I think that's the beauty of. Maybe there needs to be a bit more of it to force people in their own business because once you're in it, it's it's great, sort of, after oh, a few years maybe. But, but yeah, I mean, if you're looking down the barrel of having to do that, you think, no, no thanks, I'll just keep working for someone else. But that's what I had to do and uh, and and I did it. I was lucky enough to work with these guys. I had enough intelligence out of working for them generated, so I had an, an, a reasonable amount of confidence in, in what I was about to do. So, yeah, away I went and... It's oh, look. It's still cash flow. Still tough now. It, it does take a long time, you know. So, um, so yeah. when the
0: meat price is up, is that good thing for you or a bad thing for you? Being in wholesale,
1: the good thing of of the model is is we sell. I mean, I'm small enough to sell to the people I want to sell to. Um, and like in anything, there's people at, at, the, at the higher end, the middle, and the bottom. I think if you've got a brand story and a good product. Uh, The people at the high end, specifically in meat now, more and more so are chasing that. So we, I stuck to that. And, yeah, I mean, the lamb wholesale thing is sort of, was the antithesis of the whole lot. And, I mean, lamb's getting tougher, it's getting dearer, so the margins, the cost price squeeze is is real. Um, So that's why I'm doing all this other stuff.
0: So buffalo and camel, so who's buying that?
1: Look, it's it's still a cultural thing by the most part. You know, for the years that I've been doing it, I always um, believe that Western cultures will get, get into it and to a degree they are and they're still looking and, you know, I've got some some guys at the, the top end that are, you know, really starting to look at it, which is good. But, I mean, at the moment, look, buffaloes, the big, you know, the Hindus can only really eat that, they can't eat beef. Um, so they, they, they chase it and then uh, the camels, a lot of Africans. Yep. Yeah, that's pretty well where it's going.
0: And um, is it mainly Adelaide that you're selling to, or interstate? As uh well? probably
1: Melbourne and Sydney.
0: To secure those contacts interstate, was that you that did that work, or did you hire someone to distribute into those?
1: They find, panels? they find you. They
0: find you.
1: Yeah, these these minorities have they've they're voracious in getting what they want, which is you know a testament to to their existence, really. You know, they I don't know how they do it, but they find you. You know, and I'm not, I don't have stuff going everywhere, but they just find you. So it's pretty cool. You know, you get a phone call from, especially Buffalo at the moment, I get phone calls all the time, you know, and they're they're Canberra and Dubbo and everywhere. So I don't know how they find me. I don't ask. They just do.
0: So how did COVID affect your business?
1: (laughs) Oh, look, it it didn't hurt it. I think with everyone staying at home, people started buying more off butcher shops. You know, they just buy it. They start, I mean, the restaurant's shut, so they were having to cook at home. The restaurant side of it, a lot of butchers will wholesale as well. But I'm I'm not really kitted up to do st- sort of smaller volumes of broken bits and pieces and daily deliveries and stuff like that. So it's sort of the, a lot of my butchers will will do that. Are um,
0: you are you a one man show? Or do you uh yes.
1: Yeah, so so I've, well, there's two, two, three of us. Um. So we've got admin, and then then we've got an interest in a feedlot on that low plains, and and a share farm that with with a guy down there. So there's a fair bit of activity there. We we contract feedlot down there and. Actually, we used to do live air freight into Malaysia out of there. That's probably how the camel thing came on, I think. I think the Malaysians started asking for it first. But yeah, well, I used to fill up aeroplanes full of live animals and send them to Malaysia. And that we, we, only really stopped in COVID. Yeah, that's probably the biggest drawback for me for COVID is that it sort of stopped that trade. And it was great. I mean, the, filling up a jumbo full of... Two and a half thousand animals and sending it off was, was great fun. It was like Noah's Ark. We had all yeah. sorts of stuff on there.
0: <laughs> Do you think it'll start up again once things? Oh, up? I don't
1: know. Look, it was it was always terminal based on the seasons. I mean, the the the, the Malaysian market it's it's very um, price orientated, and during drought droughty animals that were cheap were in abundance more or less. And as soon as it rained, it was probably going to stop. But yeah, we did. We were there four years or something. Yeah
0: what's the next step for you where do you see yourself in 10 years time
1: yeah i'm I, I obviously probably keep doing what i'm doing uh, you know i've been probably in the last few years heavily involved in the live animal production systems whether it's feedlotting or trading um but whether i move m- probably more into wholesale um maybe food service mm-hmm. as far as sort of there's probably maybe a, a position in the market there,
0: so, ch- that so you
1: can drive your own story, I suppose.
0: So delivering to restaurants and things like that? Supply yeah, I think that, trade.
1: yeah, I mean, that we're sort of, we're going through a bit of a, a change at the moment. It, it does rely around having the right people. I'd need someone to, to come on board to help with that. But look, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm not labour costs are low, so I can be fairly dynamic. I can move fairly nimble as far as where I can drive things. Um, you know, a lot of the decisions I make are market-driven. So it's just keeping ear to the ground and sort of doing what I'm doing I suppose are you um, happy
0: are you happy you made this decision to go down this track
1: yeah yeah I think so you know mm. your own your own boss and I mean I always said to myself that if I didn't want to do it anymore I could just go back to running properties again I suppose
0: so do you think any of the kids are going to follow the family line yeah
1: yeah oh, the, Henry the I think Henry will head that path I think at this stage you just Thinks that working on a property is riding motorbikes, but yeah, I think he'll well, head isn't down that not that what you thought to Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't stay <laughs> on though. Um, but oh, look, it it is like I said. I think initially, it, it, at the start of this interview, it, agriculture is a good, strong industry, and, and the one thing that uh, COVID's taught all of us is that ag stayed strong, and others didn't necessarily. And I, and I think it's nationally, I ag, think ag, ag is going to have to be. Something that all of us focus on um, It's the one thing that we've got That many others don't Around the world um, As far as land And productive land And, and good land managers you know. um, So I think As far as my son I mean I'd love nothing more For him to go into Ag uh, Not because I did it But I just think it's a it's a great path He's sort of It's funny It doesn't matter what you try and do To push your kids in different directions They often end up just being like you <laughs>
0: That is so true. Will Gwyn jones Jackaroo turned corporate farm manager turned meat wholesaler. You name it, he's done it. To find out more about what Will does, his details are all in my show notes. Also, check out my website. I'm a voice coach. I produce and host podcasts, as you know. I have a few projects coming up soon that I can't wait to tell you about. Also, recording your family memoirs. Get in touch if you'd like to find out more. Thank you for listening. I'm loving all your reviews. Keep them coming. I check every day. Catch you soon for another episode of Voice It.